This podcast sometimes deals with mature content that may not be suitable for a younger audience and could be triggering for some individuals. Discretion is advised. The views expressed by our guests and others are solely their own. Views expressed in this podcast do not represent any uniform services, the Homeland Heroes Foundation, Dairy Cam, or any other organization. We're your hosts, Alyssa and Gary. Welcome to the Homeland Hero Salute, a podcast sharing stories to heal and honor our heroes. Brought to you by the Homeland Heroes Foundation and produced by Dairy Cam. Learn more about us and our mission by following the Homeland Hero Salute on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Hey, welcome back, Don. This is part two of your story. To listen to part one of D- General Don Bolduck's story, go back and listen to our previous episode. How are you doing today? Doing great. How are you, Alyssa? I'm good. We've got Gary as well on. Hi, Gary. Hi, Gary. Hi, Don. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so going back over part, uh, you know, what you did before the military, you were raised on a farm, you were a police officer before you even graduated high school. Um, you were set with a lot of, sounds like a lot of responsibility at a very young age. Um, you did a lot of hard work growing up. So that was something when you joined, that was something you were used to, I guess. Right. Um, Mm-hmm. Tell, us, tell us about your experience joining boot camp and and kind of where you went from there. Well, I you know went down to Fort McCollin, Alabama, um, and got introduced to a couple things. One, the red dirt of the South, um, <laughs> hadn't seen much of that, and for the first time in my life, I was introduced to um, air conditioning. I <laughs> have air conditioning in, in in our homes. I never knew anything about air conditioning really. And I go in the army and the barracks, um, you know, where all 40 of us would sleep was, you know, air conditioned and so on and so forth. Uh, and, uh, I was like, wow, this is, uh, this is pretty nice, you know, particularly being out there in the Alabama heat, uh, basic training in June and July and August, uh, that time frame. Um, and uh, I went to, um, I finished up my training as a military policeman because I thought that I would be in law enforcement my whole life. Uh, and mm. of course, uh, you know, that took a turn, but nonetheless, um, went into the military police corps and I uh, had a great time, went to 4th Infantry Division um, and uh, uh, enjoyed my time there in Colorado uh, in the, you know, you know, early eighties, uh, we didn't do much training because we didn't have much gasoline. Uh, and I, so I did a lot of spot painting of, uh, you know, armored personnel carriers. And, and, uh, we had the time we had the M one five, one, a three Jeep. Um, so I'm dating myself there. Uh, but, uh, nonetheless, um, it was great. Uh, and, I remember getting a uh, soldier of the year there at uh fourth infantry division and this one star general um, comes over to the ceremony to uh, give me my, uh, give me my award and have, bre- and I got opportunity to have breakfast with him and the, uh, 
a one-star general was Colin Powell. Oh, wow. Wow. And, um, and so, uh, I got my picture with him and, uh, you know, that was great. And, uh, I was, um, I was warned ahead of time by my, um, first sergeant and my command sergeant major, you know, you just tell them what your name is and that you love the army and, you know, um, and then shut up. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I did that. I told him my name and I told him I loved the army. And, uh, and then he, you know, asked me, you know, so what do you want to do? And I said, well, I really like to jump out of airplanes. Uh, and he goes, Oh, well, you don't like the fourth ID. And I go, no, sir. I love the fourth ID, but I just want to jump out of airplanes and go to the 82nd airborne division. And, um, he looked over at the command sergeant major and he said, I think that's something we could do. We can get this, uh, fourth infantry division soldier of the year over to the 82nd airborne division, jump out of airplanes. Wow. Tell you what, I paid the price for that. (laughs) I told you to shut up after your name and you love the army and no, not you. You just got to keep on talking. And so, um, I, uh, cleaned the latrine with a toothbrush, uh, for, uh, one Saturday and, uh, you know, learn my lesson, you know, keep it short and sweet. Um, but nonetheless, two weeks later, I got orders for airborne school and I was off. And so I went to airborne school and then off to the 82nd. Um, uh, and, uh, that was a great time. Uh, and, you know, came, I came down on orders for drill sergeant school and, uh, and I, you know, was a young buck sergeant and I, I was thinking about, you know, transitioning to, um, uh, college and, uh, going through ROTC. And so I got called down to my company commander's office and he said, Hey, um, Sergeant Baldick, I, uh, understand you're uh, in the window for reenlistment. And I know you've come down on orders for drill sergeant. That's great. Uh, and, um, uh, I said, yes. Um, I did, sir. And he said, well, uh, that's what I want to talk to you about. Um, and he goes, so what are your plans? And I said, well, I think I'm going to get out, go to school, ROTC, uh, and, uh, you know, become an officer and then, you know, and then uh, follow a law enforcement career. And he said, well, you know, you know, Sergeant Baldick, I really, I really don't think you're officer. And uh, you'll be a great command sergeant major, but I just don't, I just don't think you're, you know, off command, you know, uh, that kind of stuff. Right. And uh, I was looking at him and I said, okay, sir, I'll take that under consideration. And my first sergeant gets me out in his office, drops me into the front lean and rest and says, you do 50. And so I have to drop down and count them out loud. And he gets real down real close to me. And he says, listen to me, Baldick, you go and you get that, uh, you go through ROTC, you get your college degree, you get those butter bars, and then you come back and you shove those bars in a place where the sun doesn't shine. Uh, and you know, and track him down and do that. And, uh, I said, okay, first sergeant. And so that's what I did. 
you know, somebody else telling me I couldn't do something. Interesting thing was someone who was evaluated as not going to be successful as an officer made it to general officer. And the guy that told me that retired a lieutenant colonel. So, you know, again, the lesson is don't let people tell you you can't do something. And uh, and, uh, you know, I just worked my way up the ranks, uh, kept my nose to the grindstone, did what the Army asked me to do. and. I, um, you know, um, focused on taking care of my people and my organization and let everything else take care of itself. Uh, in the meantime there, I got married to one of the, to my beautiful wife, Sharon. Uh, we've been married for almost 32 years now. Next, next month will be 32 years. We had three children, uh, and, um, I'm very grateful for that. That's awesome. It's incredible to uh, to have been married through all of that and have a wife that sticks with you for that long. That's uh, commendable, to say the very least. Yeah, you know, you make a good point, you know, about the trials, tribulations, and the struggling that our family members do, and they just don't get enough credit for it. Yeah, they don't. Um, and certainly those that that stick it through and, you know, go through the long haul. You know, I mean, when I transitioned uh, from my basic branch to special forces in 1993, I was gone all the time. And then 2001 hit, and then I ended up doing 10 tours in Afghanistan, a total of 66 months. I was wounded twice, lost 74 men and women in combat, which I, which I remember every single day. Um, and, uh, and I think... Hey, honey, I, I am on, I'm on the radio. <laughs> um, my son, he's singing away out there. <laughs> sorry, for the, sorry for the interruption. Um, uh, but, um, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, she basically raised, raised, uh, my boys, uh, you know, literally by herself. She stuck by, she stuck by me. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, really helped me through, you know, the tough times of dealing with post-traumatic stress and traumatic brain injury and, you know, pain management issues. And, you know, if it wasn't, if it wasn't, uh, for her encouragement and, you know, getting me to go for help in 2013, um, you know, uh, I don't know what would have happened. I was just not functioning as the, um, in my personal and professional life, I was more comfortable going to combat and being in a combat area than I was being at home. Um, and, uh, you know, that's not right, but, um, you know, you deploy so much, you get into that environment so much and, you know, your brain reorders itself so it can stay alive more than a day. And then you come back and you're not taught, taught any coping mechanisms. We don't really do a very good job of treating our guys with mental injury. And that manifests itself in disciplinary problems, drug and alcohol abuse and, you know, domestic violence and, and divorce and, you know, all these problems that they're having right now. And, and, and I, I submit to you that you don't have to look too far. You can look right down there at Fort Hood, what's going on there right now and what has gone on there right now. Uh, they're dealing with the 
with the causes and symptoms of uh, service members that have not been properly given the treatment they need for their mental injuries and their physical injuries. And it's, it's all coming to a head mm -hmm. and they're doing the cosmetic thing by doing the investigation and then holding people accountable. But beyond that, getting at the real problem. Uh, and I know this because I put um, together a program when I was, when I was uh, commander of special operations command Africa um, I saw it. I said to myself, I'm, I'm, I'm commanding Navy SEALs, special forces, Air Force special operation forces. I'm commanding uh, some of the, you know, uh, military's elite forces. And I have disciplinary problems, drug and alcohol abuse problems. What the heck is going on? And if I hadn't gone through uh, my um, therapy, diagnose therapy, um, for two years prior to taking my division command, uh, I would not have been as enlightened either. But this was something that I held near and dear to my heart. As a newly promoted brigadier general, I went for help and I got the help that I needed, but I kept it under the radar because of you know what it would do uh, to my career, uh, which is what I thought it would do. Uh, and um, in 2015, when I took command of my division level command, I said, enough's enough. Uh, and I publicly came out, uh, the New York times did an article on it. I got a phone call saying it's not going to bode well for me. And I said, well, I'm not doing this for me. I'm doing it for the organization and the people in it. And from that point on, I basically, uh, disregarded, uh, DOD policy, uh, and promised my guys that if they went for help inside the system that we created, uh, that I would protect them, that I would provide top cover for them, that they wouldn't lose their clearance. They wouldn't be uh, removed from their team. We would come up with a flexible treatment program and we did it and it worked. Uh, 52 people identified with, um, post-traumatic stress, 471 with TBI, some of them with both. What is TBI? Or uh, traumatic brain injury. Okay. Um, uh, we dealt with the pain management issues, uh, and lo and behold, uh, when we did our assessment at the beginning, and then we did our assessment 26 months later, we had a significant decline in alcohol and drug issues, significant decline in family issues, significant decline in inappropriate behavior at work. It was unbelievable. That's, um, that is incredible. It, so something that we discuss pretty prevalently on the podcast is mental health, especially of course, with our service members and there's stigmas in just society in general, when it comes to mental health and it comes to, you know, telling someone, Oh yeah, I go to therapy. That's not something that is looked at with a positive light, but as the generations go on, we are getting better. Um, so I want to say, I really commend you for, for one, finding therapy yourself in going and talking and doing what you needed to do to make yourself a better version of yourself mm -hmm. and then promoting that within your community. Um, because the veterans that we've spoken to on this podcast, a lot of them 
come from backgrounds where they have PTSD or they have, you know, PTSD is of course the biggest one that is dealt with when I think within the veteran community, um, that's, you know, besides of course, physical injuries. Um, so a lot of the veterans that we've spoken to who deal with mental health issues do encourage others and not just veterans, anyone and everyone who's dealt with any kind of trauma to go and seek that help and find that support and become that better version of yourself because your mental health is just as important as your physical health. And it also impacts your physical health and your everyday life in, in more ways than I think people comprehend. And we're starting to see people comprehending that more and more that, Oh, if I'm, you know, having these nightmares or having these anxieties, it's not normal. And I deserve that help, help that help. So I'm, I'm really happy to hear that from you. Well, you know, I mean, it, <clears throat> we got plenty of studies in the military now, and there was one that was just recently, um, released and reviewed from the Special Operations Command at, at MacDill Air Force Base. And that's, you know, the four-star headquarters down there. And, you know, the number one reason why people aren't going for help inside a community that needs some help is because of the uh, stigma and because of the worry that it'll have a negative effect on their career. And I think uh, pride as well plays a really big part. They don't want to see, like, you know, the, the, the military seems to breed this do everything for yourself. Don't rely. Uh, I'm not going to pr- say this correctly, but like, you know, be strong mm-hmm. and don't show that weakness. And yeah, the suck it up and drive on mentality. Yeah. Um, no, is, uh, is dangerous. And, and in this particular area and I, you know, told my guys, Hey, you know, you're not weak. You're strong. If you ask for help, we can't afford any more divorces. We can't afford any more disciplinary actions. We can't afford any more suicides. Uh, we can't afford any more suicide ideations. Uh, we got to become healthy and, and the triad of, you know, mental, uh, you know, being strong mentally, strong physically, and your spiritual well-being. it's, it's all connected. And, um, it's something that, uh, you know, I drive home, I say, Hey, listen, I have post-traumatic stress and I drop the D because the guys in special ops don't believe they have a disorder. And it's, it's hard to get people to respond when you're saying they have a disorder. So if you just say post-traumatic stress, they're like, yeah, uh, I got that. Right. And traumatic brain injury and pain management and the whole nine yards. Right. Uh, and you just get, uh, you know, I'm Don Baldick. I I'm human. I suffered myself. Uh, Nobody that goes to war is the same when they come back. And if you think they are, well, then you're kidding yourself. And we should be much more enlightened now. And I would agree with you that people are becoming, you know, developing a better understanding of it. But, you know, it's still out there. You know, yeah. I, I felt it in the military. It was held against me. Uh, no problem. I'm a big boy. I can deal with it. But I also felt it, you know, in the civilian community when I uh, particularly when I ran for office, you know, uh, you know, my Republican opponent in the Republican Party here, um, you know, questioned whether or not I was, uh, you know, fit to be a senator because I have post-traumatic stress uh, and because I have traumatic brain, I had, you know, I have traumatic brain injury and 
and I have a dog. Uh, and I got a federally trained medical service dog named Victor. Uh, and, uh, you know, they called him a gimmick. Uh, they called him everything under the sun to try and discredit me. This is my own party. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that, I mean, that, you know, that, you know, that hurts, but you know, you, you deal with it and, and you move forward. Uh, and when people see that, they're like, well, I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to do that. But at the same time, they see general Don Baldick going for help and advocating for help and standing by people that go for help. And that, that emboldens them to do the same. And, and when they do it, someone else is going to do it. And that, that ring gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I have a dog cause I'm qualified to have a dog, but I have it mostly primary reason is to destigmatize, you know, to encourage people to get a medical service dog. If, if they, uh, you know, meet the requirements and, uh, you know, because it is a visible, visible sign of a problem, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a huge thing. I have a cousin who is, and I, I'm just going to throw this out because it's my biggest pet peeve. I have a cousin who has a service dog. She's legally blind. Um, she has a genetic, um, uh, gen- uh, genetic disease called Stargardt's, um, mm-hmm. which affects the, um, it, it's a, de- let me see if I can get this correct. It's a degenerative eye disease. She developed, started developing it when she was eight. I have an uncle mm-hmm. who deals with the same disease because it's, it's genetic. So if both parents are carriers, you have a one in four chance, I believe if I'm getting those numbers correct, um, of, of getting it. My uncle is one of four. My cousin is one of four, Mm. which is just, you know, one of those weird coincidences, I suppose. But she recently, um, through the, and I'm totally going to blink on this, but, um, through a program for people who are legally blind, she was able to get a dog and anyone out there who sees an animal and that animal is on a special leash or wearing a special vest or, you know, is acting a certain way, please do not pet the animal. Um, if you have questions, please go up to the person that is holding the harness of the animal and ask questions because these dogs are working. They're if, if you, someone who's legally blind, some, you know, there's dogs for epilepsy, so many different things. Um, uh, of course, too, Don, you have your dog for your traumatic brain injury. If I'm sure he's trained to see certain things in you and act on those things um, to keep you safe. And if those dogs are distracted from their goal of keeping their owner safe, it can be extremely detrimental to that person. So I just want to kind of put a PSA out there that if you see a service dog, whether it's wearing a vest or not, I mean, this probably should be for any dog. Don't just go up and approach and pet a dog. Don't stick your hands in their face unless you have permission by the owner. It's just something I feel obviously very strongly about. Mm -hmm. I was out with her and, you know, she's, she's a very outspoken young person. She's going to school to, she wants to be a lawyer. She's extremely smart. She's, I'm incredibly proud of her and how she's developed into this beautiful young woman. And I've been out with her and people come up and pet the dog. And I'm like, I have no idea who the hell you are, but get away. And she'll, there's been a couple of times where she'll be like, that was so-and-so's dad. And I'm like, I don't care. They should know better. <laughs> Anyways, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox now. 
No, I, yeah, you're I not wrong. Yeah, you're not wrong because uh, some, you know, some of those people with medical conditions uh, where the dog is working, they, if the dog is distracted, you know, they could miss these cues that this person's having, you know, maybe a medical episode and, uh, you know, the person could, you know, suffer um, yeah. because their dog was distracted and things like that. I've heard of those type of cases. You know, Don, what you were talking about when you brought up Fort Hood, that kind of uh, really resonated with me. There's, uh, that's where I did most of my um, the, my final years in the military and where I deployed with the first cab. And uh, uh, General Eflon was uh, actually Colonel Eflon. And he was, he was the colonel that took me uh, to my first uh, tour in Iraq. And, um, and, uh, when we heard, you know, that he had, um, you know, I was relinquished of his command and things like that. A lot of us guys, you know, a lot of my, um, battle buddies and, uh, you know, we, we got together and talked a lot about, you know, how, um, how incredible of a leader that we thought he was. And, uh, and, um, it's, it's interesting how this all came to head because remembering how, everything was when we, when we got back from our deployments and getting questioned and asked about, uh, our feelings and PTSD and, and, uh, you know, mental health issues, suicide stuff. And it was always the go-to don't talk to anybody about anything because it'll come back and haunt you, you know? No, you're absolutely right. I'm, you know, I mean, those pre-deployment, sometimes mid-deployment and post-deployment uh, surveys that they ask you to fill out are, uh, are worthless. Um, you know, after the first person tells the truth and gets punished for it, um, uh, nobody else is telling the truth. I don't believe I told the truth on any of them that I ever filled out. Um, and, um, I tried to delay filling them out as long as I could. Um, and I certainly didn't, um, didn't promote it among my men and women because, you know, I knew that, um, you know, it wasn't going to be handled properly. So I tried to do things internally that made up for that. Right. Um, and, um, the general consensus was that, that nobody was there to help you. That's and right. That's right. They were out to get you. They were about out to identify you as a mm-hmm. problem and get rid of you. Right. Which, which to me is, you know, is the wrong answer. One, you're, you're dodging your responsibility to someone that you have uh, a requirement to, uh, to take care of. And secondly, the resiliency that's built into these uh, service members after their experiences, and you know, we need to leverage that. We need to continue to reinforce it. I mean, you know, everybody is affected negatively, mentally and physically and spiritually in this world, you know, some more than others based off of events in their life. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, I mean, combat, you know, post-traumatic stress is something that we, you know, need to deal with. And if we're going to send our men and women off to war um, for nearly 20 years, then, you know, we're going to have to be much better um, at this. And we're going to have to realize, because we know studies going back to antiquity uh, about post-traumatic stress and about traumatic brain injury. I mean, we're so much smarter now. We have the programs. We have the ability to make the difference. It's our approach that is broken, uh, and we have to fix that approach. 
Absolutely. Can you talk about, um, and, and feel free to go in as much or as little detail as you prefer, but can you talk a little bit about um, your experiences and how those experiences led you to therapy and then the kind of therapies that that worked for you and that you explored? Sure. Um, you know, I mean, um, I think my wife, uh, if I remember correctly, 2007, 2008 is when she really noticed, uh, the changes in me. Um, and she really noticed the changes in, in, in my personality and my behavior. And she started studying them. She's a registered nurse. So Mm. she, um, she really became, you know, a student of that. And, you know, she'd bring me over and show me, uh, you know, Hey, you know, you're acting this, you know, you're secluding yourself. You don't want to go out. You're not doing the same things that we, you know, we used to do. And, um, you know, I was not violent in the, you know, at home, I was just detached and I looked for any reason to stay at work. I looked at any reason to deploy, uh, not that I, because I didn't love my family. It's because I felt they were better off with me gone. Um, and, um, and at work, I wasn't a very nice person to be around. I mean, you know, quick to anger and not patient and, um, you know, uh, not understanding of things. And, you know, I mean, it's just counterproductive. And, um, I, you know, I have, uh, you know, one, one little story here that a, um, a warrant officer of mine, when I was a battalion commander, was a um, was a warrant officer one, warrant officer two during my time as his battalion commander, and he had a certain view and impression of me as battalion commander, um, and then as a W five, uh, the highest rank a warrant officer can achieve, he comes to work for me as my senior warrant officer in in my division level command, South Africa. And he is like, wow, you are a different person. Wow. Um, you're still Don Baldick. You're still that warrior focused guy that we all know and love, but you are so much better to be around. Um, and your approach is so much different. And it's because I got therapy. Um, and it took me to 2013 to my wife saying, hey, listen, you've got to get some help. Uh, and you know, I said, you're right. Uh, and I got, you know, and I went about it, like I said, under the radar and I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress and TBI. And I've had both my hips replaced due to blast injury. I've had three discs in my neck replaced due to, um, helicopter crash in Afghanistan. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, just the, uh, you know, the normal wear and tear, uh, on your body, um, you know, it just presents problems every once in a while and being in pain is not a fun thing. Um, and then, you know, that wears on your psyche as well. Yes, it does. It wears on everything. Uh, and, and so, you know, I mean, I was glad to get the feedback, right? Because I did become a better version of myself. Uh, and, um, I were, you know, when I think back and I regret some of the situations that I found myself in that I did not react the way I should have reacted. Um, and, um, you know, I certainly hold myself accountable for that and I, I've used it to become a better leader. Right. I mean, 
you know, that's what the one thing about leadership is, you know, you get a lot of, you get a lot of at bats, uh, and, uh, you know, you just try and get better and better and better at it. Uh, and it's one of them, you know, it's a lifelong pursuit. So, um, I was glad to get that feedback uh, from him and, you know, and others and, uh, seemed like the only people that didn't like it were the people above me, <laughs> you know? Um, so, uh, uh, but that's the way it goes. Uh, and I see it now today in the military. I write about it. I speak out about it. Um, you know, I just wrote something today about the article that came out on the, uh, you know, the Fort Hood incident and who they're holding responsible and why and this, that, and the other thing. Uh, and that's great. Okay, you're going to hold the leadership responsible, but um, <clears throat> only part of the leadership um, because the good old boy system's in effect. You know, you're only going to punish part of the leadership, but the other part of the leadership you're not going to punish, um, which I, you know, I disagree with. Uh, and you know, having been part of that, that, um, uh, environment as a general officer, I know exactly how it works and I know all the players. Uh, so for me, I got, you know, some, some good insight. Uh, and, and I said, but, you know, unless you're willing to address the root causes of these problems, you're going to see it again. Uh, and, um, you know, we have, people at the lowest ranks and people at the highest ranks suffering from post-traumatic stress and not getting treatment and, and, you know, the therapy that they need. And, and my thing is, Hey, listen, you can be highly functional with these things. You know, Winston Churchill was FDR was Teddy Roosevelt was Frank, uh, um, uh, Abraham Lincoln was, you know, many, many other, uh, leaders, uh, you know, struggle with these things, you know, uh, did a lot of reading on Winston Churchill and, you know, he called his, his post-traumatic stress, his depression, things that he struggled with. He called it the black dog, you know, and he mm -hmm. used, he used scotch and whiskey to, uh, you know, to medicate himself. Um, and uh, we need to be better than that today because you can be very high functioning, uh, you know, with these things. That's why I, I don't like the mental illness piece of this. It's, it's a mental injury uh, and it's got to be treated like any other injury, broken ankle or, you know, broken brain, uh, whatever it happens to be. Uh, and you can fix it. Brain's a pretty remarkable thing. Um, yes. You just have to give people the coping mechanisms they need and the support they need and do it inside a system uh, that uh, doesn't make them feel um that uh, they're not a contributor and they're not uh, important and uh, that they can be successful. You know, if you're getting treatment, you're better off than someone not getting treatment. Right. I mean, that makes sense to me. Absolutely. And I think something important too is if you, whether you feel like you need it or don't need it, I think everyone can benefit from therapy. That's my personal opinion. Um, you know, you, you never know kind of what's what's hiding in the closet until until you open it. Um, and and everyone deserves to get that help, especially if they're suffering. It doesn't matter how big or how small you think your trauma is. You deserve to have that support, and you deserve to become the best version of yourself. Um, I agree. Gary and I just interviewed, um, they're going to be on the podcast or a few episodes before this one, actually, um, two folks, one of them 
founded an organization, a nonprofit called 220, um, and that's 220.org. And their mission, um, the, the, they're naming 220 is the idea that 22 veterans a day take their lives. Um, with COVID-19 happening this, this past year, um, it's estimated that there's more than that. Mm-hmm. And they want to bring that number down to zero. Um, so if someone is out there struggling, they offer services, um, at discounts and I believe for free to veterans. Um, Don, if this was something that you wanted to look into, you could absolutely look into it. Um, just go to 220.org and they offer different resources and different kinds of, um, therapies and such to veterans, to, um, those in the healthcare industries, uh, firefighters, police officers, um, first responders, EMTs, nurses, doctors, anyone really in healthcare as well, they're offering their services to. Um, I'm not sure if that's for free or at, at discounted or not, but they're also trying to train um, therapists and counselors throughout the United States in order to, to they have this, this training um, in, in when the episode airs, you'll have to, cause we're recording this before we air the episode, of course, but this year episode will come after, um, they're what, what they've done is create this, um, and I'm probably going to get the term wrong, but this type of therapy, if you will, this, um, not procedure, but, um, this process of trying to help people with PTS. And I think the, the lexicon for psychology is dropping that D as well. Um, so the, the post-traumatic stress, they're helping with people that do that or with anyone who has kind anxieties they've created or they've helped develop this process, um, and built on a process that was around since the seventies to help people come to terms with their, and, and kind of reshape. I mean, you said it in the beginning of, of episode one, I think when you go to war and you're in those combat zone, your brain, you have to completely reshape your brain. Mm-hmm. And that affects people in ways that we're still trying to understand. Um, right. and obviously that's where PTSD comes part, part of PTSD comes from is that trauma shapes your brain a certain way. So 220.org has, has worked with this process to kind of reshape your brain in a different way to be able to talk about those traumas. Cause there's a lot of people that can't talk about the trauma that they went through. Um, and the, the cool thing about it too, is part of the, this process is you don't even have to actually talk about the trauma. They just walk you through this, um, this I'm blanking on the word that I want to use, but they, they walk you through this whole process and you don't even have to talk about your trauma, but you afterwards, you probably can. Right. Um, yeah. So it's, it's definitely, there is, there's resources out there. Talking doesn't always work for everyone. So there's other things that people can do in order to help heal themselves. That is true. And, you know, I think it's um, it's important uh, to have, you know, a variety of different uh, types of, you know, therapies uh, for people. Um, and, you know, one works for some and one doesn't, you know, it doesn't work for others. But at the end of the day, um, it's the diagnosis that counts because I've, I've met so many uh, veterans that have been misdiagnosed for 
PTS or TBI, the symptoms are so similar. Uh, and, you know, so it's so important to get the diagnosis right. Otherwise, the therapy is not right. And it's so important to have therapy that, um, you know, different types of, uh, you know, thera therapeutic programs, uh, you know, to, um, to get people through uh, or involved in so that they're, you know, they're, they're more comfortable uh, with it. You know, we, one of the things that I know the military will struggle with is this, right? Oh, geez. Well, these guys are going to be non-deployable. Well, why are they non-deployable? Well, they'll need to get their therapy. Well, let's be flexible with their therapy. Um, and I know that um, while I was the SOC Africa commander, I had my therapy appointments established for me. And when I was in Germany and not in Africa, um, you know, I went to launch stool and, and knocked it out um, face to face. And I brought my wife with me because it's important to have family members or somebody, uh, you know, as a support mechanism that knows you and that can be that, you know, the truth teller in the room. Because, <laughs> um, you know, my wife's pretty famous at, at launch stool for, you know, I mean, she gave, she gave him permission to use it, but, you know, she sat there with me in a therapy session and the, the, the doctor was saying, Hey, you know, ask me this question. And, and I answered it and she said, well, that's BS. Right. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then the doctor said, well, then what is, you know, Sharon, tell me what, what's the real deal. And so they're not going to be able to help you if they don't know the real deal. And you made that point earlier. Sometimes people just don't want to talk about it. They're embarrassed sometimes of their actions, right? Uh, and they don't want to talk about that, but it's necessary to do it. Um, and, the, you know, the top-down support from leadership is what's hugely important in the military to make it work. Um, and, uh, you know, this is, um, you know, the point that I was making was I was in Niger in Arlet, which is, you know, one of the more, most remote places on earth, I think uh, you can, it's not the edge of the world, but you can see it from there. And I did a, a Skype with my therapist. Right. Uh, and so it's just a matter of working with people and having these flexible, um, you know, programs. You don't have to remove someone from their job, take them away from their team, take them away from what they love to do on a day-to-day -day basis. And then, um, uh, in order to give them therapy and, you know, put them in a special battalion, uh, and then, you know, make them live in separate barracks and, you know, uh, living conditions and further isolate them. Uh, it, it makes no sense. That approach is just bankrupt. It's broke. It doesn't work. And it, you're just adding more infrastructure, more money, uh, and spending stuff, spending money that you don't really need to spend. Yep, absolutely. And I think with, what we've seen with COVID is the switch for telehealth appointments. Um, I go to therapy and I get to do, I, you know, I, I sit on my computer and I talk with my therapist. Um, and you know, it's, it's in the middle of my day. They can work around my schedule. I, you know, I'm, I'm a marketing person, so I'm at my desk all day and I'm working from home right now. Um, but you know, I get to schedule that. And so it's becoming easier. And I'm hoping that, you know, with, with all of the bad that we've seen with this last year and how much you know, 2020 has 
been awful. I'm hoping mm-hmm. that there's we get a lot of silver linings out of it. And I think I think we are starting to see some of those silver linings um, come to fruition. Yeah, I you know, I agree with you. I think, you know, the investment in people is never a wasted investment. Absolutely. Well, I think that's a good place to stop for today. Thank you, General Don, for joining us again uh, for part three. Tune in in a couple of weeks. This podcast is brought to you by the Holman Harris Foundation, an organization dedicated to the reacclimation support of active duty service members, veterans, and their families in their time of need. To learn more, support, volunteer, or donate, please visit homelandheroesfoundation.org. Thank you to our production team at Dairy Cam, creating connection through story for a better world. Learn more by visiting dairycam.org. And thank you for listening and make sure you subscribe to the Homeland Harris Salute wherever you listen to podcasts.